GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Good afternoon. How are you today? Thank you for joining us. We're live from the Sunborn today from Aspire, an event looking to create a more sustainable built environment. And we've got lots of content lined up for you today on that topic. We're live from here from now until two on Radio Gibraltar and also on GBC Television. The conference this morning was opened by the Deputy Chief Minister, Joseph Garcia, who spoke about the need for a revolution in learning and in ideas to make sure that we are not putting profit ahead of quality of life. And there's been so much building in Gibraltar in recent decades. I know that it's a a theme that a lot of us think about a lot. So I look forward to discussing it with you uh, between now and two o'clock. And we've got some great guests lined up. But it's also a big case in the magistrates court, a big day uh, in a big case at the magistrates court. Ian McGrail was in tears after the closing arguments were heard. Um, He is expecting uh, the judge to return, potentially with a decision, at four o'clock this afternoon. So make sure that you stay tuned to Radio Gibraltar and monitor uh, our social media, the GBC Newsroom social media, if you want to find out as soon as that decision comes in. But let me tell you a little bit about the the closing arguments that were heard this morning uh, in the magistrate's court from both the Crown and the defence. The former police commissioner, Ian McGrail, of course, denies any sexual assault ever happened. In order for a conviction, the Crown has to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. Prosecution lawyer Johan Fernandez said, essentially, the case is a he said, she said scenario. Mr. Fernandez told the court there's no evidence that the woman is lying and that a delay in reporting the matter is no indication that her allegations are false. She, she said she's been consistent with her version of events throughout and only wants to seek justice. While acknowledging that there are other issues that surround Ian McGrail, namely the inquiry into the circumstances surrounding his early retirement, the prosecuting lawyer said that those circumstances have nothing to do with a complainant and that she's almost been caught in the splash. Mr. Fernandez reiterated evidence that shows that she has been offered nothing in return for her complaint except protections under the whistleblowing law. The prosecuting lawyer said the complainant has been through an ordeal and if it was simply to get a transfer out of the RGP, then she's already made other allegations regarding the police that would have afforded her whistleblowing protections that wouldn't have put herself through the ordeal of a very public trial. Mr Fernandez admitted that the scene of the alleged incident was a busy location but said if the woman was lying, she could have said it took place somewhere else. That's a summary of the prosecution's closing address. What about the closing by Mr. McGrail's lawyer, Charles Gomez? Well, his was a lengthy address to the court. He said his client completely denies the sexual assault and pointed out the many contradictions in the woman's evidence. The former commissioner has referred to two incidents the complainant highlighted in her evidence, apart from the alleged bub- bum grabbing. So apart from that, one was a patrol in which 
she said he requested that she join him during uh, which he was over-friendly and called her pretty. That's what she, she said. Mr. McGrail told the court that he remembers a third officer was present. Evidence from this third officer submitted to the court is that Mr. McGrail did not behave inappropriately that evening. WhatsApp messages sent from the complainant herself to her then-partner that evening about her time with the then-commissioner also say that what they did was discuss work with no mention of anything untoward. Another occasion highlighted by the complainant was a conference in which she said Mr. McGrail again specifically requested that she attend and that she was by his side the whole time that she was at the event and that she was the only officer made to wear uniform. Mr. McGrail showed the court numerous photos and videos taken at the event which suggest otherwise, with only one of the many images shown showing the pair appearing together. He said that the complainant is not reliable and that he, Ian McGrail, rejects what she has said entirely. His lawyer, Charles Gomez, told the magistrate's court this morning it was implausible for his client to risk everything by committing the assault, equating it to professional suicide. So the closing arguments have been heard at the magistrate's court, and the judge is expected to return uh, at four o'clock, and we will bring you the very latest. But we're here at uh, Aspire and we're discussing, uh, it's an event that's discussing a sustainable uh, built environment for Gibraltar. And it's my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, live on Radio Gibraltar and on GBC television, Paul Bassano. Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Nice to see you again. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Uh, You were one of the uh, panelists uh, talking about the need for good design and also to look at the life cycle of a building, not just the materials that we use to, to get it going at the start. That's it. Um, I think what I wanted to shed light on, and I think several other speakers have also echoed the same sentiment, which is that we need to look at things holistically um, and not just uh, look at, you know, the, the the process of building as a checkbox exercise. I don't think anyone wants that. Uh, and I think each site is, is unique and should respond to its surroundings in a unique way, which you know, optimizes the use of the natural resources that are around it, natural shading, natural light, natural ventilation, to to elevate the base level of efficiency and then improve on that even further with with renewables. And in your discussion, it was said that perhaps one of the things that could be done after this uh, event is measure the performance of buildings after they're built and once people move into them and are actually using them. Exactly. I think at the moment, there, there are some developers who, out of their own personal interest, are, are, are leading the way on this. But I think hopefully policy will help support uh, and to encourage others to do the same. Um, and ultimately, so that we can learn as, as quick as possible and implement those changes in, in near future uh, developments, as well as retrofitting what we have to make it even more efficient. So, so you're a, a, an architect at Gamma Architects here in Gibraltar, involved in, in lots of different projects. How important would you say sustainability is uh, to yourselves and, and to the industry more generally? I think definitely within the practice, it's something that we try to champion in absolutely everything we do, um, the way that we use the office even, uh, as well as into our projects. Um, and it's something that we always try to have a conversation about with our clients, with suppliers, the products that we, we specify. Um, but at the same time, uh, sometimes we need to wear several hats and make sure that you know things make business sense, uh, looking at the, the full life cycle of a building as part of that. And I think 
sometimes uh, we need help to to uh, push the conversation to think long term rather than just obviously short to mid term gains. Um, and as I say, we we are very grateful to work with people who are already thinking along the same lines. And uh, thankfully, I think conferences like this also help to push those who who aren't to to get to the same level. Because there was a real emphasis today on uh, the fact that the climate emergency makes it urgent for us to make our buildings more sustainable. That in Gibraltar. Uh, buildings and and the electricity that they use once people move into them and and work there account for up to 70% of uh, the emissions associated with life in Gibraltar so it it's an area that um there are there are challenges in but also provide great opportunity for us to do better exactly um i think obviously the 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 construction industry um can potentially set the standards and it's something that obviously affects many other industries around it as we're seeing with with the sort of people that we've got speaking here today from finance to supply to um, you know governmental as well um, and I think as long as everyone starts to uh, get their ideas in line and starts singing from the same hymn sheets that's the the best way forward and um, I think we can make real impact in sort of imminently. Good. Soon. Soon, yeah. Great. So um, uh, anybody who's seen uh, your designs, Paul, I think it's fair to say that, that you're, you're very forward thinking. You, you make very, very attractive designs and, uh, and, um, and they catch the imagination. But one of the things that, that you've said is that um, the best buildings, the most sustainable buildings are the ones we already have in, in many respects. In many respects, yes. Um, yes, I think everything needs to be taken um, site specifically because there are uh, there's a lot to be said about the efficiency of new builds as well which obviously is something that we champion um, but in the case that we have uh, either existing materials that we can use from elsewhere or an existing building on the site how much of that can we retain in a way that allows a site to function in, in the way that we need in this day and age as well as keeping potential flexible options for future generations because who knows how they will be using their buildings um, in the future. So, so you as an architect um, and, and somebody uh, who is involved in creating new buildings and also retrofitting old ones, you, you are always thinking, what, like 10, 20 years ahead and, and hoping that um, you, you're contributing to something that's going to still provide good quality of life in, in, in as I say, 10, 20 years' time? I think there are there are various approaches, and and as I touched upon in my presentation, there are, there are buildings that were you know built centuries ago that have withstood the test of time and can be considered sustainable purely on that basis, as well as the way that they use natural you know elements to be comfortable in those buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thick walls to to make sure that we're cool. And... Yes, but I, but then at the same time you can have the, you know the latest technology to create a very modern um, building. Um, which maybe won't last as long, but can be easily disassembled and then reused. So there's there's totally different mindsets which are equally viable, but they, it just needs to be thought about and carefully. And and also I think there needs to be uh, an eff- an emphasis on quantifying just how beneficial these these measures are because uh, it's it's comparing apples and pears sometimes, and we do need monitoring to to prove that actually these measures are are doing something beneficial. Yeah. Okay, so um, in short, just to finish off then, Paul, um, the most important idea that you think um, our viewers and listeners should keep in mind when it comes to making our buildings and infrastructure as sustainable as possible? I think uh, designing for longevity and flexibility is key uh, and looking at 
the whole life cycle. So the longer the life cycle, in theory, the better. Um, and if we can't achieve that, how can we make it so that the individual elements can be, you know, uh, broken apart and reused to essentially increase the life cycle in other ways as well? All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Jonathan. Enjoy the All rest right. of the event. Take care. And uh, we look forward to seeing more of your cool designs soon. Hopefully. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, we're live from the Sunborn today on uh, Gibraltar today. And um, we're talking about uh, how we make Gibraltar's buildings and our infrastructure more sustainable. Uh, and um, our, our next interviewee is... Uh, has held senior commercial positions in the energy market in the UK and across Europe, and he's passionate about electric vehicles, batteries, and smart tech, which accompany uh, the transition to electric vehicles. Good afternoon to Philip Valarino, uh, who uh, is Gibraltarian, but you've been working mostly away from Gibraltar in recent years, Philip. That's right. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, good afternoon. Twice in one day. I haven't seen you in years, and now it's twice in one day. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so tell us, what have you made of the conference so far? Um, so I, I think that it's a, a great inaugural conference um, and I was you know, delighted to be invited to, to come and participate and you know, contribute in my own way to, to, to Gibraltar based on uh, the work I've been doing overseas and, and, and abroad. And, and one of the focus points that I brought really was about um, how the built environment supports the transition to the electrification of transport. Um, so Gibraltar has similar stats to the UK. Uh, 30% of carbon emissions really come from transport. So other than reducing cars, the cars that remain on the road need to um, electrify because that is, that is the future. Uh, EVs need charging infrastructure and crucially, it, they need clean energy to power um, and charge those batteries. And buildings and the built environment, in my view, is the backbone for, for that infrastructure. Okay, so um, we're on the cusp of big changes then, because Gibraltar has committed itself to, to what, uh, uh, not selling any more diesel and petrol uh, vehicles by twenty twenty six twenty six, which is yeah. just two and a half years away now. Yeah, and then by twenty thirty. So, the many of the major um, car OEMs, car manufacturers, have already pledged to have fully electric lines by twenty thirty. So we're talking really the big brands here. Um, some of them have gone further. Uh, for example, Jaguar, to give you an example, um, they have pledged to have a fully electric line by um, in one and a half years time, 2025. Um, so I guess the point that I wanted to make was that the wave of electrification of transport is coming. There will simply not be any more internal combustion engine vehicles being produced. Um, and we don't want to be caught short without infrastructure. Um, because all of those new vehicles will need to be charged. Correct, correct. And there's, you know, well, ideally... I suppose there's, there's, there's the electrification of vehicles. So there will be hybrids and also uh, electric for a few more years. And then uh, at some point, electrics will just take over completely. Well, potentially. I mean, but hybrids, you know, don't solve, don't solve the problem. The answer really is battery electric vehicles um, if we really want to be serious about solving the climate crisis. You know, and these cars are ready now. Been, there are lots of myths that have been debunked. Um, the technology has come along in leaps and bounds that you can do up to 500 kilometers on a single charge. And that battery technology is getting better all and all the time. So it really is maturing and advancing at, at, at a great pace. Um, so really, battery electric is, is the way to go. There are talks of hydrogen. Hydrogen fuel cells bring with it lots of um, 
requirement for charging infrastructure, the very much more expensive infrastructure, right. and also the carbon life cycle of those vehicles is actually greater than battery electric vehicles. And we need to look at the life cycle, as um, as Paul was saying. No, you need to look at the, the the full time that that product is going to be used, be it a house or or a car, and make sure that the emissions over time is what's taken into consideration absolutely absolutely and you know a further point it's not just about replacing like for like this is about other modes of transport as well right this is about clean mobility there's nothing cleaner than walking um you know then using public transport electrifying the bus routes um which is very possible and clearly i mean a fact is that there are more electric buses sold in europe now new buses uh in in other european countries than uh, internal combustion engine buses you know this is now that that tipping point has been reached so walking uh, cycling which i know is you know popular and also you know generates, point. generates lots of opinion locally for sure um and um yeah then public transport and then the remainder um for particular use cases is personal cars or shared car infrastructure we're very good at sharing stuff in gibraltar um we no longer in other parts of our life own our assets so we don't own our music generally you know you have um, spotify and other brands are available uh, and also you know we're looking at netflix prime video etc so this idea of access to a service or access to an asset as opposed to ownership of mm. is really the way to go and sharing sharing those resources okay and finally um is gibraltar up to that challenge of shifting from I mean, so we've set ourselves the targets are we going to be ready because you said that we need to have the electrical infrastructure there before um people are, you know are, are needing to to plug them in and charge them Yeah, well, is Gibraltar up for the challenge? Uh, frankly, I don't think Gibraltar or anybody else has the choice. We need to be up for the challenge. This wave of electrification is coming. Vehicles are, um, are you know, you won't be able to get ICE vehicles anymore, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, so we need to be up for the challenge. And actually, we should embrace the challenge. Electric vehicles are cleaner, greener, um, lower in terms of uh, total cost of ownership. And they're brilliant, fun to drive. And They're so quiet, you know, you won't have these um, loud exhaust pipes uh, ripping up the streets. It won't feel like Gibraltar anymore. Uh, but you, they still have speakers so you can play reggaeton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Philip, a pleasure to talk to you and enjoy the rest of the event. Thanks. Thanks a Bye -bye. lot for, for being here on Radio Gibraltar. Philip Valerino um, joining us on Gibraltar. Today we're live from the Sambon um, where uh, Aspire is happening today. It's a, a conference on making the built environment and our infrastructure in Gibraltar as sustainable as possible. And it's pulling together uh, local uh, champions in this sector as well as international keynote speakers. Good afternoon to Katrina Brady. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. What a write-up. Um, it's so exciting to be at GBC Radio Gibraltar because I work for an organization called World GBC. So it <laughs> feels like a stroke of fate. It's us, but on a world scale. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Katrina, you, you did the, the second keynote. We heard Tony Juniper this morning, um, who people might recognize uh, from his Friends of the Earth days uh, and from Natural England. Uh, a real sort of personality in, in environmentalism and conservation. Uh, he, he really sort of laid out the, the science and the fact that, um, you know, man-made, human-made emissions are uh, pushing the temperature of the world up and we need to respond and we need to respond quickly. And he said that he was impressed with what he heard um, in Gibraltar, the, the conversations that I've been having here, have been had here today uh, on sort of trying to, do new things and do them quickly. 
Um, would you associate yourself with that? Or? Oh, completely. Um, one of the things I wanted to really put across today is as well as the urgency of the situation that Tony was talking about, and we've heard from wonderful other speakers, it's still going on upstairs, but I wanted to leave people with a concept that I'm really excited about, which is called the circular economy. And I think for an economy as small and as community-based as Gibraltar, this is a really exciting opportunity. With a circular economy, the idea is to be moving away from the linear models that have been our business as usual for the past number of centuries, since the Industrial Revolution, where we would have take make waste, we'd have taken what we needed, turned it into something and then thrown it away. And we're guilty of doing that with our cars, our phones and our buildings as well. But the principle of circularity, of taking less than we would have otherwise taken, taking less, taking it efficiently, using it, using it in a sustainable way, designing it sustainably, whether it's a house or a new pair of jeans or whatever it might be. And then at the end of its life, treating it more in the way that probably our grandparents did and treating it in a way that every asset or product or material that we have retains a value. So we repair it, we reuse it, and we avoid it going to landfill and so consequently avoid all the emissions that are associated with the way that we take and make and waste stuff. So, so at the moment, uh, a lot has been said about um, how consumerist we are in the way that we live our lives and that we are used to, as you say, using things and throwing things away. And, 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 and then an emphasis on, on making the economy circular is just trying to start again when you finish using something in a way that, that you had intended to use it, instead of throwing it away, sort of just giving it a new life and starting that circle again and, and seeing what you, what else you could do with it. And you think that applies to buildings as well? Oh, totally, totally. Um, as, as you say, it's um, keeping our materials in as long a lifespan as possible and then favouring materials that are helpful to nature, that help to restore our ecosystems and our biodiversity. And... It might seem like a really simple concept, but when you're mentioning consumerism, it's really an issue that when you attach a statistic to, people realise how important it is. Because I'm sure that many of your listeners today will think, ah, sustainability conference. They'll be talking about energy, they'll be talking about wind farms, uh, decarbonisation, and that's very much the case. But even if we totally decarbonise all energy tomorrow, that's only going to impact 55% of the emissions that we're currently releasing into the atmosphere, the other 45% of global emissions comes from stuff, to put it lightly. It comes from the way we make, use and dispose of stuff. And we've got to start tackling that. And that is the more individual consumerist approach to our materials in all sectors, but particularly for built environment, because that's where 50% of our global materials are being used. That's a lot. Um... Okay, so, so there's a big challenge ahead and, and, and you think that uh, some of the ideas that you've heard and discussed here today are going to help and, um, and w with the necessary urgency? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I think Gibraltar is a really exciting place to be having this conversation because of the clear, the clear interaction between government and private sector. Just looking at upstairs where this conference is being held, it's fantastic to have people actually addressing policymakers and people from business actually being on stage. That's an incredible level of interaction and advocacy power. So 
it's really exciting to see. And obviously, I appreciate the challenges are ginormous when you're looking at a small country and community. But it's amazing to see the commitment to sustainability that is really so evident upstairs from all the speakers in the audience as well. Excellent. Okay, so um, in short, Katrina, for a, a general public audience, um, as are, as is ours on Radio Gibraltar and GBC in Gibraltar, <laughs> <laughs> um, what would the most important sort of nugget of information be that you'd want them to stay with? I would say see value in every product. Everything has a value. We just need to change the way we look at it. Katrina Brady, thank you so much for joining us on behalf of World Green Building Council, World GBC. Thank you very much. <laughs> A pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Gibraltar today, live from the Sunborn, from now until two on Radio Gibraltar and also on GBC television. We are covering uh, an event called Aspire, uh, which has been organized to try and reflect on and, and improve the sustainability of our buildings and our infrastructure. Lots of local professionals who are working in the building sector are here, architects, uh, designers, engineers, consultants, and um, there are also some keynote speakers, and one of them joins me now. Uh, good afternoon to Baroness Lindsay Northover, who uh, has been a member of the House of Lords uh, for some 20-something years now. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, um, and you also uh, worked as a UK government minister before that. So what are the, would you say are some of the main obstacles in politics to bringing about sustainable buildings as quickly as we need to? Well, I think that's a very, very good question, and this conference is, is clearly addressing those. Um, it strikes me that the government of Gibraltar is making all the right steps. Um, it's very impressive that in 2019 the Parliament recognised the climate emergency, and if anybody saw the news um, of the wildfires in Nova Scotia, and I have a son who's in New York who's sending oh. me pictures of what the skies were like in New York that far away... Um, so we know we, we are beginning to really grasp the significance of the challenge that we have. So the government of Gibraltar has recognised the climate emergency. They've brought forward a Climate Change Act. And I've seen their, their ambitious plans for what might be taken forward in terms of renewable energy, uh, more sustainable buildings and um, so on, pedestrianising areas, trying to reduce the use of fossil fuel cars all of the things that need to be done. So the first thing, I think, is that you do need to have governments engaged, um, but you also need to make sure um, that you are involving the public more generally um, and business and industry. And one of the key things here, I think, is that Gibraltar is a financial centre and increasingly the in the financial sector... Um, banks and so on, need to report upon what they are doing. That will help to drive the kind of changes that we all need to see, because we all need to work on this together. Okay, so um, what do you make of the conversations that have been had so far um, here at Aspire? Um, I think it's excellent. Um, I'm most impressed. Um, there are many people who are already working in these areas and um, showing what they can do or what they are doing, but also what the barriers have been. Um, so we've just heard from somebody 
um, who was who was um, constructing a building in the United Kingdom, and it cost more because he couldn't involve the banks. And then we heard somebody from the banking sector saying, actually, they're now trying to move this forward. And that's the kind of engagement that you wish to see from these different sectors. So I've been very impressed indeed at um, the contributions that have been made and those who are here at exactly, exactly what a government should be doing. OK, and of Gibraltar more generally, had, had you been here before? I have, and in fact, actually, I was here um, for the National Day uh, last year, which, of course, of was cancelled sorry, because, I, I, I knew uh, of, of, of uh, the Queen's passing um, and had the privilege of, of being here when, when she was remembered. So, yes, I have been here, and I, I was here immediately after Brexit as well. Um, I'm a Liberal Democrat, so the people of Gibraltar have your know <laughs> where I stand on this one. And, um, and, and, and I suppose one of the things that strikes me is that Gibraltar, it's, it's, it's in a very challenging geographical area, <laughs> a challenging site, but it's very resilient, um, battered away, and not least, of course, now by Brexit, which it didn't ask for. Um, and so I'm incredibly optimistic as to what Gibraltar could do. So, And you think that against that backdrop of uncertainty uh, about our future relationship with Spain and the rest of the EU, um, do you think that we will have the headspace to be able to prioritise making our buildings and infrastructure sustainable? Um, I certainly hope so. And in fact, I was saying um, to the to the environment minister that... Um, one of the things that's being brought forward by the EU, um, working with Horizon, and I'm, I'm finding out whether or not um, Gibraltar would qualify for this, because it in includes the countries where the Horizon Science Programme operates, um, is that they are um, identifying a hundred um, smart cities, including Barcelona, Madrid, Seville, and Glasgow and Bristol in the United Kingdom, okay. and trying to see if they can move those cities forward in a sustainable way, that the cities learn from each other, and then pass on that information to others. And it seems to me that Gibraltar ought to be part of that. Just looking at the plans that um, the government has put forward, it's exactly the kind of thing which the EU is wanting to take forward. So that, that's something which I'm looking into. All right. Well, Baroness Nordhofer, thank you so much for joining us and we hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Gibraltar. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. We're live uh, at Aspire, which is uh, an event that's hoping to uh, prompt conversations about how sustainable our buildings are and our infrastructure is and where it should be moving, what the, di the direction of travel should be. And we're live from the Sunborn from now until two. Uh, let's welcome our next guest. Anna Burrows is uh, founder and CEO of See It, Be It Films. Uh, and um, and you've got 20 years of experience uh, uh, sort of in that space. Uh, tell us a little bit for somebody who's not familiar with your work uh, about what it entails. So uh, See It, Be It is a hybrid educational resource and film company. And we make films that shine a light on the world of work so that children can see people that look and sound like them doing jobs that they don't know exist and that's important uh, to, to this conversation about sustainability because... Well, it's really important because despite the world of work changing at a rapid rate over the last 20 years, the aspirations of young people have changed very little. 
Um, the uh, there's what, a, what do you mean? They still sort of think about the same sort of jobs and doing them in the same sort of way? That's right. So the OECD did a study and they asked the question to 600,000 students across 79 different economies, what job do you see yourself doing at the age of 30? And 47% of boys and 53% of girls all said one of the same 10 jobs, teacher, doctor, lawyer, nurse, vet, jobs that are entrenched in the last 100 years and very few from the fourth industrial revolution. Which would be sort of a computer scientist or, or, or coder or... Absolutely, or biodiversity engineer or vertical wall uh, engineer or um, sustainable jobs that we don't even know exist yet. So it's important that young people are starting to embed the idea of sustainability into uh, their aspirations because that is what's going to be solving the problems that we're going to face in the future. And from my experience of young children, a lot of them have that connectedness to nature which some of us lose a little bit of in later life but they they start with it don't they in awe of animals plants trees absolutely and despite um, the fact that children and young people and gen z specifically are saying that climate change is the most important issue in the world today very few are connecting their aspiration uh, sorry their um, their passion for the environment with what they're aspiring to be when they leave school and um if I'm not mistaken, your report isn't out or, or is it out yet? You're, you're producing a report that uh, is going to uh, talk about the strong connective tissue between employers and education. That's right. So last year we did an, uh, we did an intervention across five schools across the UK. Um, and uh, these schools had access to 10 films that shone a light on the green energy sector. Um, and they had accompanying lessons that went with them. And what we did was measure the impact that those films and lessons had on the young people Um, and 64% of the young people that didn't know what a green job was had this knowledge after they had the intervention Um, and over 50% of young people could name more jobs they thought they'd be good at following the intervention and finally as a filmmaker this is most close to my heart but 81% of the young people said that Watching the films gave them um, a better understanding of the jobs that are going to exist in the future and pathways into them. And films are are a great medium for that because they they can do something with our emotions because a picture tells a thousand words and we can convey so much in such a short space of time. Absolutely, Um, because if what I've learned in the 20 years of TV is that if you want to make an audience think, you have to make them feel. And the Generation Z today, they understand uh, short-form content, they... uh, navigate to, towards it um, and it's it's how we should be communicating with young people okay Anna if there's one thing that you want our viewers and listeners to stay with uh, as a result of um, our chat here what what should it be um, I would say that stronger connective tissue needs to be formed between industry and education um, because we need to start telling the stories of the people that are passionate um, about their work so that young people can inspire can be inspired by them young people can only aspire to be something if they see it hence the name of our organization 
See It, Be It films. That's right, yeah. Thank you, Anna Burrows. A pleasure to talk to you and uh, enjoy the rest of your time here at the event. Thanks, Jonathan. And in Gibraltar. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. We're live at the Sunborn for Aspire, uh, which is looking at making Gibraltar, uh, its buildings and its infrastructure in particular, as uh, sustainable as possible. There are architects here, uh, designers, engineers, uh, politicians, uh, and, and there are local professionals as well as, uh, as well as international guests, as we've heard. And uh, we're going to speak now to the uh, professional who brought it all together. Uh, good afternoon to Catherine Walsh. Welcome back to Gibraltar today. <laughs> good afternoon. Um, how's it going so far? Really well, I think. We're very, very happy with the turnout. We've got a full house. Um, I think the speakers so far have been, you know, fantastic, really inspirational. Um, like I'm sort of picking up bits and pieces of conversation in the coffee breaks and hopefully now on the lunch break where, you know, I think people are having the conversations about sustainability that we were hoping to inspire. So from that perspective, from our, you know, from our perspective, that's already been a success. So different um, approaches, but, but a common thread throughout that um, there's a certain urgency uh, with which we need to bring about change. Um, and that's we've seen that in, in, in all of the speakers, but, but um, the deputy chief minister uh, led the way this morning, followed by Tony Juniper talking about a revolution, which 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 sounds strong, but but it is a climate emergency. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's it's, it's important to reflect on that because we have been talking about a climate emergency now for three or four years. And yet, you know, globally, we are not responding to the climate crisis as if it were an emergency. And I think one of our panelists, Philip, um, sort of really made the, the comparison quite nicely about how we responded globally to the COVID um, emergency. And so I think what that showed us is that where there is a, a will, you know, amazing things can happen. And I think well, I hope that what today will show is that here in Gibraltar, there is a will. And I think we do have the people here who can make fantastic things happen. And quickly enough? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's for the central government, to the political government, I suppose, to uh, decide policy. But um, one of the discussions also alighted on this idea that perhaps, uh, and, and Paul Passano, who we interviewed earlier, said that perhaps um, there should be incentives uh, from the government to measure the performance of buildings once they're in place. So uh, not just talk about how energy efficient they might be and, and, you know, sort of certify that at the start, but then once humans move into them, uh, be it a, a residence or, or an office, and start doing the messy things that people do, uh, changing the boilers in residential or, or, or whatever it may be, uh, that we actually measure that performance and and you know reflect on it and learn the lessons that we need to learn. Is that a conversation that is being had? Would you say uh, among um, the government? It is a conversation that has been had, but I think certainly I've taken from it that um, that this is something we need to look at in more detail and more quickly. Um, it is true that there is a significant data gap when it comes to buildings in respect to how they're being used and whether you know, we have these energy performance certificates that measure the, the forecast performance of a building, but we have no measure of how they are actually performing once they're in place. Um, so that is something that we're, we're certainly going to take from it. And I think the other key thing that we'll take from it is I think that this that there needs to be more collaboration between government and industry and the, you know, the professionals and the experts in the industry to help to guide that policy rather than expecting a fully top-down approach where government tells you what you have to do, but rather that it be a collaborative approach where together we find the best solutions for Gibraltar. And sometimes it's said that the best conversations at events like this happen away from uh, you know, the main stage. Mm -hmm. Do you get a sense that that's happening? 
I think so. There seems to be a lot of energy in the room. I mean, maybe I'm just feeling <laughs> overly optimistic, but um, certainly all the feedback we've had has been very positive. Um, and I think the quality of the speakers that we've had so far and that we'll have this afternoon um, has, has been really, really fantastic. And I hope everyone's taking something positive from it. Okay, well, thank you for um, bringing us in and allowing Gibraltar today to be a part of that. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine Walsh of the Department of the Environment. So there you have it. That concludes our coverage from Aspire, an event here organized by the government of Gibraltar, along with its uh, industry partners to try and think about a more sustainable uh, future for our buildings and for our infrastructure. What might it look like? How do we get there? I hope that uh, some of the conversations we've had this afternoon uh, have, um, have planted a seed for you and that you enjoyed them. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.